This morning we're going to start a series looking at um, what Jesus had to say after the resurrection. Uh, And so Jesus had several conversations with the disciples in the Gospels and Acts. um, And I thought, what better way to to do the after-resurrection Sunday thing? Um, Normally what we would do, we have uh, Tessara Kosti, which is 40 days before uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, which is in old in old uh, old Anglo-Saxon Middle English was called Lent. Uh, Lent just is an Anglo-Saxon word which means spring, um, but uh, it means has a lot of religious connotations to it. So I decided to use a Greek word because that way nobody'd know what we were talking about. Um, Tesarakoste just means 40 days. Pentecoste means 50 days. There are 50 days after the Resurrection Sunday that are. Um, modeled after the the distance between Pesach or Passover and Shavuot, uh, the first fruits, the offering of the first fruits. Ancient Israel had 50 days from the end of uh, the Passover feast to work their fields and then bring their first fruits uh, back to the temple. Um, And then they had a third feast, Sukkot, which is is the, the last days of the harvest in the fall where they would bring their harvest in. In those 50 days, uh, Jesus was with his disciples from the resurrection, um, from Passover until uh, until, uh, Shavuot or Pentecost, 50 days. Jesus was with his disciples for only a very short period in there. And then what he said moved those disciples over the course of those 50 days to become the foundation of what is now the church. And so looking at his words, looking at what he said after the resurrection, I think is important for us as the church to kind of ground ourselves uh, in kind of a, even a pre-foundation. You know, when somebody builds a house, they don't just, well, I, I guess in the south they do it this way. They just pour a concrete slab and build the house on top of it. But here in the promised land, um, when you build a house, you, you have to build a foundation. You have to, and in order to put a foundation in a house, you, you don't just, you don't just start pouring concrete into the ground. They bring in excavators and they dig down, um, and they get in there and they have to move rock and they have to, they have to lay a bed and then, then the concrete guy can come and once everything's formed, they can start to lay the forms and pour the foundation. But there has to be done something even before we lay the foundation. There has to be uh, some prep work done, some site work done to, before we do that. And I think that when, when Jesus is, is building his disciples up, encouraging his disciples to get to the moment in Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit is manifest and the church absolutely erupts, the world does not know what to do with this group of people that are ready to turn the world upside down. There's some, found, there's some pre-foundational work that's being done in Jesus' words, right after the resurrection. So I thought we would take these these weeks um, before Pentecost Sunday, we would take these weeks and just kind of look at what Jesus has to say to his disciples. And so we're just going to move pretty much uh, through the New Testament as it's organized in our Bibles. And so we're going to be in Matthew, in chapter 28, the last chapter of Matthew. And we're actually going to read the resurrection account and then watch for Jesus' words. So Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now this, by the way, is why we have uh, our worship gatherings on Sunday rather than on the Sabbath day. Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. 
We worship on the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now after the Sabbath, toward the day of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, and I want you to watch the times that we use the term fear, for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, literally, rejoice. That's the word that he uses. Rejoice. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. See the inversion that happens? They leave with fear and joy. Then he says, Rejoice. Do not be afraid. There's a lot going on there. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, now remember who this is, these are the guards who were afraid, uh, they had ass- and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the world, the end of the age. Jesus' first two words to these women are significant. And they fit into what is happening here in this narrative. The first thing that happens when we when we read this, and the first place that we encounter, um, the first encounter that people have with the supernatural after the resurrection is this moment when this angel of the Lord appears. And we see in verse 4 that for fear of him, the guards trembled and fell like dead men. Now, I don't have to, I can't even imagine something so terrifying that you're willing to fall down, that you, you start shaking, uh, and you fall down and lose consciousness. Um, nonetheless, something that would do that to tried, tested, and trained military men. But this was clearly a very intimidating, very frightful moment. Now, in my mind, and this may or may not be the way that it happened, but in my mind, this situation occurs with these guards standing at the the, the entrance to the tomb, and the women, Mary and Mary, 
Um, how would you like to be the other Mary? She doesn't even get a last name. She's just that other Mary. It's like it's like people named Ray in our church. It's just it's that other Ray, not that Ray, that Ray. Um, so so they are coming to the to the temple and, or coming to the the tomb, and this thing happens, and the guards fall down, and these two women are just standing there, you know, kind of shocked by this guy dressed in white, and and the angel says, "Do not be afraid." to them. And the question I want to ask you right off the bat here is, and, and this is a rhetorical question, but for something to you to process, what is the difference in response between the guards and the Marys? Because something happens that is truly terrifying. And there's no doubt that these women are terrified. But they're, the difference between the response probably has a lot to do with their attitude toward Jesus. So the angel says to them, don't be afraid. And i got to be honest, I think they're still afraid. Now I have a pretty solid foundation for this. The Bible says they were still afraid. In verse, verse uh, 8 it says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And, and again, I want to plant a seed for just some thoughts as you're reading this, but how often do fear and joy intermix? This is not a common thing. It happens in our lives. I think when you have children, when your children are born, there is this mixture of fear and joy. I remember when Ariel was born, our little giant-headed baby, and uh, she got it from my side of the family, most definitely, my huge cranium that strains my neck. She was she was born by by you know uh, she had to be taken by C-section and she was in the NICU and there was all these things that were going on. She wasn't really sick or anything. They had just never seen a vitro born and didn't know what to do. <laughs> and um and they brought her to me and I am not a baby person. All right now now my wife she sees somebody with a baby she's like ooh baby. And she runs over and she's playing with the baby and making the baby coo and stuff. I have this policy, generally speaking, about children. Um, when they find me funny, that's when I play with them. Prior to that, it's dangerous. I'm going to drop them or do something. Now, um, this, my nephews, this is a great example of why you should never trust me with children. Um, my, nephew was, my nephew Joshua, who's now 20 years old, he... Um, he was uh, about a year old when my, my younger sister, Kristen, got married. Um, and he, Joshua and I were best buddies when he was little. He thought I hung out with Jesus. It was awesome. He had an action figure of Jesus and one of the disciples, and he called the disciple Eric, Uncle Eric later on. So anyway, my brother-in-law, Doug, Joshua's father, so it's not like I was doing this without parental consent, and I were bored during the wedding preparations for my sister's wedding. My, young, my older sister was very pregnant with my second nephew, Titus, um, uh, and uh, their second child. And um, Doug, my brother-in-law Doug and I, had Joshua, who was just a little over a year old, and we were walking down the rows of the church where my sister was getting married. I'm going to regret telling this story throwing him across the pews. We were, we were literally walking down the aisle and I would take him and hurl him and he would go, ha, 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 and then Doug would catch him and then Doug would throw him back, ha, 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 and Doug and I would get... My sister did not approve. My brother-in-law thought it was awesome. Um, so generally, I don't 
you know, play with children until they've gone out of the really initial fragile scene. So Ariel was born, and um, I had never held a newborn infant, ever. Uh, I don't hold other people's children. This is my policy. In fact, when Caitlin was born, going you know back, when Caitlin was born, Becky just put her in my arms. And I went, awesome. <laughs> and turned and handed her to either my wife or Tom. I can't remember. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't like to hold fragile, delicate things. I'm, I'm a little bit of a klutz. When Ariel was born, I realized I had no choice. She was mine. People were actually going to hand her back to me. And so I have, and there's pictures of me. My wife just thought it was, she's, oh, it's the cutest thing in the world, burly man holding baby. Um, I'm terrified. There are pictures of me in the hospital. I've got, I've got Ariel and I've got her locked up like, like I'm on security detail and she's made of diamonds. I was so afraid her head was going to fall off or something. I did not know how babies worked. I had heard their necks were weak. Now, Ariel, by the way, held her head up within a week of being born um, because Devitros have strong necks, apparently. Um, and, uh, but she, you know, she was, but I'm sitting there, I was terrified. And yet I was rejoicing. It was so incredible. It was so amazing to have this, this new life to, to, you know, stink the house up. It was It was amazing, and yet it was terrifying, right? But outside of that, how often do we have fear and joy mixed together? These are not common experiences. We have them with our children. Um, But these women, they, they are both fearful and joyful because, I mean, first of all, an angel just told them that Jesus, their best friend, their, their teacher, their rabbi, their, their, their master who had been crucified and they were going to prepare his body so that it wouldn't stink while it decomposed. That was what they were going to do. They'd been told by an angel, fairly reputable source, that he had been raised from the dead. Now, they're afraid of the angel. But I want you to take a moment and think about what your initial response to being told someone has been raised from the dead would be. It is not necessarily a positive reaction. Raised from the dead, nah, zombies, World War Z, there's a lot going on here. What does this mean? And so they're fearful and joyful, and then Jesus meets them. They are running. The Bible says they ran to tell his disciples. And so they are running to wherever the disciples are and behold, Jesus met them and said, rejoice. So he he zones in on, they're feeling two emotions, right? And I imagine the Mary's telling Matthew this story saying, we were both fearful. We were, you know, Mary Magdalene's like, I was afraid. And Mary, the other Mary, she's like, I'm just the other Mary. She's like, yeah, but it was exciting. It was cool. And yeah, we were afraid and we were joyful. And then Jesus shows up. He says, rejoice. And then the second thing he says is, don't be afraid. They're put in a very fearful situation, right? This is a terrifying situation. And it's rightfully justified to be afraid. Jesus steps in and speaks to them and says, okay, don't be afraid. Now we're going to process what all that means. 
But we want to keep going because, again, I want to mention the response to this fear. These soldiers, they fall down as if they're dead. Marys, they take off fearful and joyful and they meet Jesus. And put in conflict, put in contrast the conversations that happen after they hear the angels. All right? Again, soldiers, the Marys. The Marys run into Jesus. The soldiers apparently run past, right? Verse 11, while they were going, going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests. So they get up and they run off and they tell the chief priests. What's the response of the chief priests? Bribery. I love the phrase, by the way, the, the, the English Standard Version translated as, as, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Now, I could be wrong, again, a little bit of imagination, but I have a feeling this conversation went something like this. So, Benjamin Franklin thinks that you shouldn't tell anyone. And the soldier goes, I don't know about Benjamin Franklin. Another chief priest goes, well, what about Ulysses S. Grant? He would like you to be quiet. Um... You know, and they're like, they're like, well, I believe that Andrew Jackson has a lot to say about this. It, they they keep working until a sufficient sum of money has been given to them that they um, they're willing to keep quiet, willing to take the risk of telling. Uh, oh, the disciples came at night. Just look at those responses. So these women go. To the disciples, they tell the disciples, so this was an interesting conversation. We went to embalm the body. Disciples go, okay. Earthquake angel, all right. Jesus says, go to Galilee. Okay. Now we're getting a little interesting. They go to Galilee. And Jesus appears. And what does Jesus say? This is kind of what I'm going to lock into. But Jesus does not say to the disciples, do not be afraid. In fact, you'll notice in the line, it doesn't say the disciples were afraid of him. Now, elsewhere, we'll see Jesus encounter them in the upper room, and they are afraid of him. But but here, Jesus goes and meets them in Galilee, and they're not afraid of him. Some of them doubt, but then he comes and he talks to them, and he says two things. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now go. And today I want to talk to you about what is the difference, what is the opposite of fear for a Christian. See, we tend to think that the opposite of fear is courage. I thought that as a kid until I heard some of the stories of some of my my grandfather's stories from World War II and some of the stories of guys that have run, won Congressional Medals of Honor in Vietnam and Korea. And they over and over old told the story of how terrified they were. So fear and courage, they're, they're not necessarily opposites. Because courage is really just being afraid but doing something anyway. You should always be worried about people that aren't afraid of things that they should be afraid of. They're going to get you into trouble, right? Um, Fear is natural. It's human. But what is the response to fear? What is the opposite of fear? 
And, and when we look at this, I want you to understand that the, the Marys were afraid, but they were going to do what they were told to do anyway. So we might call that courage. I'm going to call it something else. When Jesus comes and talks to the disciples and he challenges them, you have to assume there was some fear going on, but not a lot. But Jesus' response to this is simple. Authority and a command. You know that the opposite of fear for a Christian is not just courage or lack of fear, but it is the accept the command of the one who is in authority over us. See, if we allow fear to control us, to govern us, to drive us, to, to, um, to mold us, we, we do not live in a life of the opposite of fear, which is faith. See, fear is when the anticipation of the unknown overwhelms my emotions. And I am so terrified of what might happen next. And that fear can paralyze me from moving forward, taking that step, because what if such and such happens? I'm so concerned about this. Today, Yesterday, uh, I followed my daughter to work. It's the first time she's driven to work in the car by herself. We were on the phone the whole time. Sorry, on Friday. Um, yesterday I drove her and we passed a terrible accident, which was um, awful. But the, we, um, we were driving along the road and I was thinking about how terrifying it is, how fearful it is to watch her drive, remembering that when I taught her to ride a bike, to this day she refuses to ride her bike on what streets that might be busy because she's, she's worried that a car might hit her. It's a legitimate concern, by the way, if you're riding a bicycle, especially in Merrimack, where people seem to think that bicycles are extra points. Um, But as I was watching and realizing that over the time of teaching Ariel to drive, she had developed a, a faith in the way that she had been taught to drive, in her knowledge and understanding of the vehicle, that although, I mean, I still... I'm still afraid when I get into a car because I'm terrified of how other people might drive. I'm terrified that I might be distracted. I mean, everybody, you should be afraid when you get into 2,000 pounds of metal and motor. You should be healthily concerned. But having faith in your training, in your teaching, in the method that you've learned to drive, um, in, in your knowledge of the vehicle, that's what allows you to step forward and take steps. I'm terrified of being with drivers that aren't afraid of that thing. The opposite of fear is faith in the one who has authority over you. It doesn't make fear go away. Fear is human. But how we process that fear, how we process that has to do with who is truly sovereign over our feelings and our actions. If fear governs our choices, we often find ourselves in the situation of the soldiers 
willing to accept and even lie about a situation rather than have to face the reality of what we're looking at. The angel terrified them. So what was their response? To run to the chief priests, to tell them what had happened, to accept a bribe, and to lie about the whole situation. The angel terrified the Marys. Their response? To start running to the disciples in obedience, although they didn't know and were still afraid. Then they meet Jesus, who tells them not to be afraid. And because they believe and trust the authority of the one who told them not to be afraid, they go about their business, they go and find the disciples, the disciples meet Jesus, all authority in heaven. Fear is a powerful motivation. And unchecked, it will cripple you. Uncontrolled fear will govern every aspect of your life. Faith is accepting, believing the authority, trusting the authority of Christ in the things we are afraid of. If you are not a little terrified, if you are not a little terrified of what it means to follow someone risen from the dead, you haven't really thought it through thoroughly. Faith steps where fear trembles. Not because you are better not because you are superior, not because you have chutzpah and machismo. I just combined Yiddish and Spanish. That was. But rather because of the one who tells you not to be afraid. Because he has authority. Now, what does fear look, look like in this passage? It looks like curling up Sticking your your, I I don't know that they did this, but I I picture these these guys curling up on the ground, sticking their thumbs in their mouths, and crawling for their mommy. In verse four, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's what fear looks like. Paralyzed, stuck, willing to lie, willing to um, just regain some control of the situation. What does faith look like? Faith looks like 11, 11 guys, most of them fishermen, listening to the voice of two women who said they met their friend who had supposedly died and going to Galilee and him meeting them. Look, going to Galilee, still doubting, still unsure, but trusting. The world is full of uncertainty. The world is full of reasons to be afraid. The world is full of reasons to not step out of our door, not to take a chance, not to take a risk. 
But faith calls us by the authority of Christ to do something. This passage is often called the Great Commission. Jesus tells His disciples to go therefore and make disciples. But I'm surprised you to know that the word go there is not a command. Make disciples is a command. But go is not a command. It's a participle, um, which is a verb used in any way that isn't being used as a verb. It's just a grammatical... Participle is the linguist version of Smurf from the Smurf cartoons. Remember when you're watching the Smurf cartoons and whenever they just threw the word Smurf in everything, I smurfed a Smurf to Smurfing. Um, a multi-syntactic variable, uh, that's the linguistic term for that. Um, but the, um, the participle is when you take a verb and you change its usage. Sometimes you make it a noun, sometimes you make it a, 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 an adjective. Uh, Greek loves to take participles and make them a statement of reality. We could probably translate this, although not completely, as, as you are going, therefore. Because I have authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth, you are going, you are being, you are continuing through your life. And now there is a new purpose to that. He doesn't say to them uh, that I, He will make all fear and concern vaporize. He says, you just start going. You start doing something in My name. You start being who I have taught you to be. It doesn't mean that you won't have moments of, of doubt. It doesn't mean that you won't have moments of fear. It doesn't mean that at times things won't be overwhelming. But as you are going, you begin you now make disciples. You start teaching. You start speaking. You start sharing. You start seeing God do extraordinary things in the lives around people of you. It doesn't mean that you won't be imprisoned. It doesn't mean that you won't be murdered. It doesn't mean that you won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean that there won't be mornings when you wake up in dark, dank situations wondering, how on earth did I get here? It doesn't mean that you will have everything provided for you. It doesn't mean that you will always be happy, healthy, and wise. But you start going. You start being. And if I could loosely translate Jesus' statement, He says to His disciples, now it's your turn. You've seen it all. Now you have to choose. Will you be afraid? Or will you be? Our journey as Christians is going to be defined by whether we allow fear or faith to have sovereignty over our actions. Just as the church has been defined for 2,000 years, and I use the lowercase c there, the, the church has been defined by either fear or faith. The church that is afraid that they might lose some advantage that they have, the church that is terrified that, that if they don't say the right things and do the right things you know, in terms of what everybody expects of them, 
not Jesus, but everybody else around them. If they don't, if they don't fit, if they don't conform, they might not be able to survive. They, and, and so they become motivated by fear. The church that's so terrified about taking a position about anything, because that might, that might affect people's perception. The church that is motivated by fear is under the sovereignty of fear. The church that walks in faith with the disciples goes and makes disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching all nations, doing what it takes. The church that despite the fear, despite the uncertainty, despite the challenges, continues to go, continues to walk, tries to find ways to minister the gospel in whatever ways they can. That's the church that is the inheritors of the disciples. We will choose fear or faith. We will choose whether we will avoid all fear or we will accept all authority. Say unpopular things as long as they are in keeping with Christ. Go contrary to public opinion if public opinion stands against the authority of Jesus. When human authority tries to trump the power of Christ, stand with Him no matter how terrifying their weapons are. Don't be bullied by the bully of public opinion, the lynch mob of social media. Choose the authority of Christ over the fear. You may not live long, but you will live for Him. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, all that we have and are is Yours. You give it to us, but we are just stewards. Our life, our breath extends from You. The matter of our bodies is just dirt You have breathed into. We live in a world that quakes before the next crisis, before the, the next terror. We live in a world where, where fear so often defines what we can and cannot do, can and cannot say. We experience it too. Father, never a day goes by that there's not some fear in my life. And yet You have called us to do, to be, to go, to serve, to love, to preach, to speak. 
you are God. And I am not. My fear is not. Help us to live in faith. More and more every day. Trusting not in our own ability to process and believe, but in who you are. You are our great God. You are our great Savior. Jesus, we believe you died and were raised again and death no longer holds. Help us to live in your power. We pray this in Jesus' name.